I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Um, Genesis chapter 3. Tonight we continue our march through these first three chapters of Genesis, um, getting into some of the most foundational truths of the scriptures as we prepare to then move um, next week into the promises of the Advent season. Um, I am so thankful for the time that we've had together um, in some of these foundational ideas. As you're turning there to Genesis chapter 3, um, the most important part of the newcomer's reception announcement that I did not make was because we're going to be doing that, parents, if you wouldn't mind going and fetching your children that direction after. Sound good? Okay. So I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 3. And then um, I will also pair that reading with a reading from the book of Romans, just so we can better gain hold of these foundational truths. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now for the book of Romans. This is from Romans chapter five. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to the many. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, in this moment, Lord, we ask that you would now do the thing that only you can do. Lord, it is our prayer that by the power of your spirit, you would come and be among us Lord, that you would enliven these words in your word, and that you would use these words and the words I've prepared, Lord, to great effect in our hearts and in our souls. 
Lord, we pray that they would leave us with a deep and abiding hope and joy in our Lord Jesus, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I remember where I was sitting. Um, I was sitting in a room. And I remember the feeling that came over me in that room when the person at the front of the room, who was a professor in graduate school, stood at the front of the room and let us know what our final exam question was going to be. First thing he said to me and to us was, welcome to your final exam. We were in the exam. And let me write for you your final exam question. And he began to write across a whiteboard and it made that screeching, squealing, squeaky whiteboard marker noise. And when he finished writing and drew a question mark, I remember the feeling that came over me. First, it felt like a rush of heat, so much so that my neck probably looked spotty. But what was strange about the rush of heat is I felt very, 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 very cold. Because <laughs> you can get hot and be cold somehow in these moments. My hands were sweaty, but my mouth was dry as a bone. And I think I started to breathe very shallow breaths. Because in that moment, I realized I did not know the answer to the question, and I didn't even know how to begin to formulate one. And it was the only question on the final exam. And I'm making some of you so nervous because it's taking you back to the worst moments of your life. Like, I, I get that. And I remember the feeling of stress that turned very quickly to a feeling of despair, which turned very quickly to a feeling of defeat. And I remember having this distinct emotional feeling. I wonder if you felt this before. In that moment, I wished I could have unzipped my skin and like somehow gotten out of it and gone somewhere else. Or I wish that I could have gotten underneath my desk and just hidden under there. Now I'll say that to say that this text of scripture and the story that precedes it when Adam and Eve eat of this tree that God told them not to eat of. The story in this text tonight asks us one massive question. Okay, I think this text begs a big, massive question. Now, my moment of despair in the classroom was really no big deal because that turned out fine, in case you're wondering. But this big question is infinitely more serious. And what I've learned is that if we don't know the answer to it, the question that this text asks, if we don't know the answer to it, I wonder if it makes our spiritual life, our hearts and our souls kind of cold and clammy. I wonder if it makes us feel despairing and defeated. So can I tell you the question? I think this text asks this question. 
It's critical that we know the answer. In our sin and in our shame, how does the Lord, the God revealed in the Bible, how does the Lord respond? This sermon is about answering that question. And I'm gonna go ahead and answer it for you because I can't take any chances. I can't take the chance that one of you might start, suddenly start coughing and have to leave for a few minutes and you miss it. Okay, I can't take the chance that one of our team members has to get up and tend to some problem that they miss it. I can't take the chance that you have to get up and do something for one of your children and, and you miss it. So I wanna go ahead and answer it for you. Okay, this is the main thing I want you to hear tonight. If you don't hear anything else I say, this is it. In our sin and in our shame, the Lord comes looking for us. In our sin and in our shame, it is the Lord who comes looking for us. In our sin and in our shame, how does the Lord respond? Well, I'll tell you, he comes looking for you. These chapters of Genesis tell us of a speaking God, a God who speaks and the world comes into being. This text in particular tells us about a seeking God, a God who comes looking for us. It's a simple answer, but it happens to be all your hope tonight. So I wanna show you this. I want to explain this to you. I want you to see it from this passage really in three distinct movements, okay? First of all, I want you to notice some key things about this text in this story. I'm going to explain a couple key things you have to see. Second thing I want to do tonight is I want to talk to you about Jesus and how Jesus puts on display this aspect of God's character, that he's a seeking God. I'm going to show you how it shows up in the life of Christ. And then thirdly, I want to issue an invitation tonight. So that's how we'll proceed. First of all, let's look at the things you have to notice from this text. First thing you have to notice from this text is how deeply sin damages. Let's take a look at verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and there was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now in this moment, the woman and the man have transgressed God's holy command, okay? But the fracture is even deeper than that. Now transgressing God's holy command, disobeying God is infinitely serious. You can't disregard God, God, this is God we're talking about, the God of the universe. You can't disregard his will flippantly as if it's no big deal. But the rupture that occurs here goes even deeper. Look at verse seven. Then the eyes of both the man and the woman were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
In other words, what we're told in this text, in this moment, is that shame breaks in and it ruptures, it fractures, it breaks, it messes up the relationship that the woman and the man have with one another. See, remember a few verses earlier, we're told that they were given to one another as equal side-by-side partners, walking into this calling to rule God's world and to shine the light of God's glory on all the created world. They're side-by-side partners in this holy calling. We're told that they are naked and they're unashamed. In other words, they see each other, they embrace each other as they are, and they're they're unashamed, they're, they're vulnerable together, and it's a delightful thing. But here, all of a sudden, we're told they're naked and they're ashamed. So they go from being delighted with one another to be embarrassed in the presence of the other. They go from being unafraid to afraid to be vulnerable. It's interesting how deeply things break, because remember how we talked about how human creatures are unique and distinct from the animals? in the sense that they have a higher capacity. They can do things, they're more creative. They have ingenuity about them. And did you notice how they use their creativity and their ingenuity to hide from one another? Their creativity and their ingenuity gets captured by sin and shame and gets distracted from what they're supposed to be doing to beginning to cover themselves. Later on, and you heard me read it, the man at least will blame the woman. Well, God, that woman that you gave to me. You're supposed to notice and catch from this text how sin and shame ruptures the fellowship that you and I have with each other. But that's not all. The second thing I want you to notice is the way in which sin damages by breaking our fellowship with God. Look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. In the same way, their fellowship and their relationship and their union with God is broken. So if sin damages horizontally, don't miss the fact that sin also damages, if you will, vertically. They heard the Lord God walking and they hid from his presence. They went from delighting in God's presence to being afraid of God's presence. And this is not the good fear of the Lord. And the Bible will talk about a good fear of the Lord, the idea that we have a fear of the Lord, meaning we're committed to obey him. Life and joy and peace comes from a good fear of the Lord. This text tells us they're literally afraid to be in his very presence, from delighted in him to being afraid of him in the bad way. Think of it again, their ingenuity and their creativity that's supposed to be deployed to glorify God is deployed creatively to try to ingeniously so they think, hide from him. As I just said, Adam later will blame the woman, but he also blames God. That woman that you gave to me. I mean, from being delighted in in receiving boundless joy in the presence of God 
to being afraid of him and blaming him. That is how extensive sin damages. And it's at this point that we're supposed to be left in a kind of storytelling suspense. Between verses 8 and 9, when they're hiding in their sin and their shame, as readers, we're supposed to be left with, okay, so what is God going to do? If this was your favorite TV show, you'd have been left in this moment of tension, and all of a sudden the credits come on the screen, and you're like, ah, I'll have to wait till next week. That's what you used to have to do. Now you just flip to the next one. But I think you get my point. The older way was better on that, by the way. What's God going to do? How is a God to respond? In our sin and shame, what can we expect from God? Do you see the question? Well, let me propose a few options. Let's say, suppose for a moment that God, this God, let's just suppose he wasn't this God, but instead he was one of the random pagan deities that lived out in the ancient world around the nation of Israel. How might that God respond? Well, quite honestly, no way to tell. Who knows? That was the thing about the pagan deities. They, they, you never knew what you'd get from them. Will you catch them in a good mood or a bad mood? They were highly volatile and emotional, and you never knew what you could expect from them. So let's say that God was a pagan God. What would that pagan God do? And the answer is, we have no earthly idea. There's a lot of fear that is stoked up in a human soul when they have no earthly idea how the divine might respond. Secondly, let's say that this God in the Bible wasn't this God in the Bible, but let's say it was the God that is admired in our culture. You know, there's a kind of God that's admired in our culture, and the problem is it's not the God of the Bible. Do you know what I mean? Now, now that God might have said something like this. No big deal. You do you. I mean, you are supposed to be the captain of your soul and the commander of your life and the person who makes meaning of your life and destiny. Go for it. I mean, I might have preferred you not do that, but I'm good. Go for it. It's fine. That sounds free, but I'm telling you, it's slavery. Have you ever tasted how deeply exhausting and how crushing the pressure of being the person to make your own meaning? Have you tasted how exhausting that is? The God of the Bible is too kind to do that. So let's suppose a third thing. Let's suppose that this God was not this God, but this God was like us. You treated these people graciously and kindly. You gave them everything. You gave them nothing but joy and delight, and they purposely disregard you and then blame you. Let's be honest. What would you do? Cut them out of your life and toss them to my right and be done. 
But this God's not like that. So the question becomes, what would the Lord, because we're talking about a specific God, do? Let's read on. The second thing, or maybe the third thing I want you to notice, is how the Lord calls to them and comes looking for them. Verse nine, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Have you ever noticed, have any of you ever noticed how the Lord does not leave us alone? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed how the Lord does not let you and I hide? Have you ever noticed that? If you have noticed that, there is a good chance that that could be to you equally frustrating, but infinitely precious. Notice, as I said earlier, this God who speaks is a God who seeks. Here's another thing I want you to notice. Make sure you take note in this story of what God, the Lord, is looking for when he comes seeking us. The answer is he's looking for our honest confession. So look at this series of questions. The Lord will say in verse nine, where are you? The man will say, well, I heard your sound and I was afraid. I was naked and I hid myself. And the Lord answers in 11, who told you you were naked? Followed by, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Verse 12, the man says, well, the woman that you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. The, woman looks, or the, the Lord looks to the woman and says, what is this that you have done? Let me just put it to you like this. These questions are not being asked by the Lord because he doesn't know the answers. Let me put it to you another way. The Lord does not ask questions that he does not already know the answers to. These are questions intended to expose. They're intended to lead. They're kind and serious, but kind. Questions intended to open up their hearts in order to expose. This is the idea. The idea here is if you cannot hide from God, then you might as well be honest with him. And the good things that await you and I on the other side of being honest with him. Y'all, the floodgates will open the moment that they are honest with him. The floodgates will open, and out of the floodgates will flow kind of two fountains. First of all, he will speak of good and righteous, proper judgment. And he still does this. He still does this. The writer to the book of Hebrews says that the Lord disciplines those he loves. And at the same time will flow from the floodgates his promises to redeem, to redeem as far as the curse is found. He will make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. His infinite mercy and redeeming love. 
And we're going to talk about all of that at length next week. But he promises that he will send one who would come, who would arrive. We'll talk about that next week. It's Jesus, by the way, but we'll talk about that next week. The good things that await you and I on the other side of honest confession are almost too unspeakably precious to even talk about. There are good things from God that await you on the other side. In this moment, Eve finally says in verse 13, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And it's from there that the floodgates of God's promises and provision flow. There's a prayer that we pray around Grace Fellowship often. It's a 500-year-old prayer. We usually pray it before we celebrate communion. The prayer goes in effect, Lord, we're not worthy. But then it points the attention to God's holy character. But you are the same God whose very property characteristics, his very um, characteristics and personality is that to have mercy. So what does God do? How does he respond to us in our sin and in our shame? Well, he comes looking for us. The second thing I want to explain to you is how we see this most certainly in the person and work of Jesus. Now, it's a, it's a major theme throughout the Bible, this idea that God comes seeking us in our sin and in our shame. It's a major theme throughout the scriptures. There's a couple places, like in the prophets, for example, there's a place in the book of Ezekiel where Israel's sin is just laid bare in all its ugliness. And it's in that moment you think God's going to say, you know what, forget you. But what he says instead, and I'm not making this up, you can read it. He says, I know what, I will confound you because I will atone for everything you've done. There's a place where Israel's sin is laid out there in the book of Hosea. And right at the moment where you think God's going to say, you know what, forget you, what he says is, I will allure you and bring you back to me. So it's a theme throughout the scriptures. But the writer of the book of Hebrews says that long ago and in many times in many ways, God spoke to us by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In other words, this aspect of God's character, that he's a seeking God coming, looking for us, is made most clear to us in the person and work of Jesus. And this week, I spent all this time reading every single instance in the gospel stories where Jesus comes seeking someone. And I'm very tempted right now to read all of them to you. But let me hit some of the highlights. After Jesus passes his test when he's tempted, Immediately what we see him doing is coming up to disciples and seeking them and saying, hey, follow me. There's a place in the Gospel of John where Jesus goes out of his way to Samaria to make himself present conspicuously, randomly, coincidentally at a well so he can encounter a hurting woman. He's seeking her. There's a place in the gospel stories where a woman touches his garment and he stops everything and seeks her. He stops and says, someone just touched me. And he seeks her in order to restore her and to make her well in more ways than one. Have you ever noticed in the gospel of John when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, have you ever noticed what happens? 
They come to arrest and they're not sure who they're looking for. Jesus walks out to them and says, who are you seeking? He initiates. Perhaps the greatest example of this we read about in the Gospel of Luke. There's a man, a short man named Zacchaeus. He is living in sin and in shame because he's a tax collector. And do you remember the story from when you were a child? Jesus walks up to him and invites himself over to the man's house for dinner. No kidding, you can read about it. And he says, you know what, Zacchaeus? Um, I'm gonna eat at your house today. I don't know if you've had the moment in your life where Jesus invited himself over to your house for dinner. I know I have. And Zacchaeus walks away healed and restored. You can just imagine him feeling cold and sweaty and stressed and clammy. And Jesus comes seeking after him and transforms him. Jesus transforms the sinners that he seeks. You can be transformed tonight. And that brings me to the third thing that I think this text leads us to see third part of this sermon. I think it issues you and I an invitation tonight, doesn't it? If God is a God who comes seeking us in our sin and in our shame, and if we cannot hide from him, and he's looking for us to be honest, and he's shown us most especially that all these things are true about him and the person and work of Jesus, all that leads to an invitation for you and me. And it's an invitation quite simply, to yield to him. Now listen, I want to talk to you as your pastor here. You can hide. You can. People do it all the time. It is universally popular to hide. You can come to church. You can be in rooms like this every week, and you can be hiding Okay, I still hide all the time. But there is an alternative. And the alternative is that you can be honest and you can yield and the floodgates of healing and mercy can begin. Y'all somewhat recently, one of my children had done something wrong. And that child of mine um, was ashamed, hiding, like would not even look at me when I finally found he or she. I have no idea where this child of mine is. I can't, I can't find him. And I, and I go in their room and they're hiding in a corner with their head in a corner. And I said, where are you? I, I knew, I knew. And I proceeded to ask, here or she, um, what had happened? And it's hard for me to explain to y'all. But in that moment, the entire floodgates of my mercy was ready to be let loose. Just ready to be let loose. 
Just tell me. Just tell me. Baby, if you'll just tell your daddy, every bit of my mercy will be set loose upon her. <laughs> it's hard to keep that going. I want you to hear tonight, you can be found and you can be free. You can be transformed. You can be redeemed. And it can all happen even tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks that you are a God who seeks. Lord, we prefer to stay hiding. Thank you that in our sin and our shame, you seek us out in order that you could transform and redeem and restore. God, I pray that that would lead our hearts to be seriously honest before you so that we can be seriously free in you. We pray. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.